chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1. He started out in the very beginning of the book of Hebrews demonstrating that Jesus is better than the angels. Okay? Better than the angels. Chapter 3. He goes ahead and jumps in neck deep showing that Jesus is better than Moses. Whoa! I mean, Moses, the all-time superhero of the Jews. Even today, you mention uh, Moshe, and people's eyes light up over in Israel. They all know who Moses is. And it's kind of interesting because the name Moses is not a Hebrew name. Well, it wasn't a Hebrew name. It was an Egyptian name. It means... Out of the river. Out of the river. Because Pharaoh's daughter found this kid, this cute little baby, in a reed basket in the Nile River. Up in the bulrushes so it couldn't float away. His mother put him there hoping that he would not get eaten by the crocodiles before somebody found him in order to protect him and keep them from being able to smell the smell of flesh, human beings, she put tar inside this little reed basket, uh, inside and out. Where'd you get the tar? Oh, you didn't know? Egypt has a lot of petroleum products. <laughs> and, and how do we know that? Because a Shell Oil Company executive read the book of Exodus. And he said, wait, if she pitched the basket with tar... That means they got petroleum close to the surface. And he convinced the company to send him over there and look for it. And they discovered it. Whoa. Make a long story short. Shell is still a major player in the oil industry. Okay? Because of the word of God. Well, here's this little baby out of the river, raised by Pharaoh's daughter. Okay? Who... And he's 40 years old, kills an Egyptian soldier who's beaten up on a slave, a Hebrew slave, and hides the body thinking, hey, he's the number three man. Literally, number three man in Egypt. Okay? There's Pharaoh and Pharaoh's son, who's going to be the next Pharaoh, and Moses, who's going to be the next high priest of Egypt. And at 40 years of age, he kills an Egyptian and has to flee for his life. Because his grandfather found out about it. Or his brother found out about it. Or somebody found out about it. Everybody knew about it. And that's the problem with sin. You cannot hide sin. The scripture is so clear about that. What we try to cover up, God allows Satan to uncover. Every time. It's like the guy who was 
asked to take care of his neighbor's rabbit. And the rabbit died. And he went out while, while his neighbor's gone. And he goes over the first day to feed and water the rabbit. And the rabbit's laying in the cage dead. He thinks, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? So he takes the rabbit out of the cage and buries it. Goes back over the next day and his dog has dug up the rabbit. He buries it again, a little deeper this time. Goes back the next day, and the dog has dug up the rabbit again. And every day when he goes back, the dog has dug up the rabbit. He tried putting a big rock over it. The dog dug around the rock, pulled that dead rabbit out. Now the end of the story is his neighbor came back, and he said, listen, I've got to buy you a new rabbit. He said, I, uh, yours died. And the guy said, oh, yeah, he died right before we left. I meant to tell you and forgot. I really didn't have to worry about the rabbit. But the dog kept digging up the rabbit. And that's the way sin is. Sin is the bloodhound of heaven. Say, what? Yeah. When the uh, the children of Gad and um, his brother, can't think of his name, and the half-tribe of Manasseh wanted to stay on the east side of the Jordan River, they told Moses, there's good pasture land over here, and we're herdsmen. We want to stay on this side of the river. And Moses said to them, it's in Numbers chapter 22, he said, okay, but you have to come over across the river with us and fight to drive out the inhabitants of the land, deliver the land in the hand of the other ten and a half tribes, and then you can come back. And they said, okay, that's what we'll do. And Moses said to them, now, if you do that, great. If you don't do it, be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. And we think, hey, it's no big deal. You know, I know it's sin, but if I do it, God's going to forgive me and everything will be okay. No, it won't. Be sure your sin will find you out. It's the law of the harvest. What's the law of the harvest? The law of the harvest is whatever you plant, that's what's coming up. And whatever you plant is going to come up after a while. It's not going to come up the next day and bear fruit. It's going to take time. And the third law of the harvest is it's always going to bear more fruit than what you planted. You plant one bean seed in the ground and one sprout comes up and that sprout keeps getting a bit taller and taller and taller and taller, especially if it's pole bean. And pretty soon, it's got bean pods all over it. And every one of those pods got six, eight, or a dozen beans in it. And that's the deal with sin. If we sow sin to the wind, the Scripture says, we reap the whirlwind, we reap the tornado. And we see that in our country. We allow a little bit of sin. And pretty soon, whoa, big sin. I think I was in high school maybe when my dad sat down with Harold Garrett Garrett at our table and my dad tried to talk Howard Garrett into voting against the bingo law in Missouri, the law that allowed bingo. And Howard Garrett said, Brother Casey, 
We're going to allow bingo for nonprofit organizations, for churches and civic groups. And if we give them bingo, then they'll leave it alone. Okay? Did they leave it alone? No. When they introduced riverboat gambling in the state of Missouri, there was one Gamblers Anonymous group in the state. Okay? Now there's like 158 in the city of St. Louis alone. Why? Because when you sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. And the people who are participating in Gamblers Anonymous are not spending their own money. You say, well, people go to the gambling boats and, and they, they do it for entertainment and they pull those arm bandits or those slot machines, whatever they're calling them now, and, you know, and, and if they win a little, great. If they don't, that's okay. It's, it's spendable money. No, it's not. Those people get addicted to gambling and they'll sell the shoes off their baby's feet. They'll take money that they're supposed to use to pay the rent because just one big score and they can pay the rent and they can buy groceries and they can take care of everything. And it does not happen. Be sure your sin will find you out. And that's what Moses said. The Scripture says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. And he's writing to Hebrews, to Jewish people. Okay. who know that Jesus Christ is Messiah, they have accepted that, or they're at least open-minded about it, and he is trying to convince them, and he says, you are partakers of the heavenly calling. What calling did God place on the Jews? Did anybody know? Yeah, you do, but I'm going to tell you anyhow, just so you'll know you're right. God's calling on the Jews was to carry the message of Messiah to the whole world. Okay? God is going to provide a sacrifice for sin. And the Jews were supposed to be the missionaries that were to do that. They didn't do a very good job until the first century. In the first century, they spread the gospel so that it began to spread across the whole world. But the ultimate conclusion of God's commandment to the Jews to carry the message to the whole world is going to be seen during the tribulation period when 12,000 Jews from each tribe of Israel. See, there's just 12 tribes of Israel? Yeah, there are. Because the tribe of Dan is no longer existent. And Joseph's tribe got divided into two, Manasseh and Ephraim. Okay? 12,000 from each other, that's 144,000 Jews. 144,000 Jews are going to carry the gospel around the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, Rick, is Israel prepared to do that? Well, I don't know. Right now they have 7 million Jews living in the land, about the same number of Jews as live outside of Israel, around the world. There's about 14 million Jews around the world. Of that number, somewhere between 50,000 and 100,000 are followers of Jesus. They're Jewish, but they're followers of Jesus. Okay? But when Jesus comes back for the church, those people, that, those Jews that are left behind because they're not followers of Jesus are going to recognize the truth in a hurry. 
God is going to remove the blindfolds from their eyes. And they're going to see it. And Paul says in Romans chapter, I think it's chapter 9, 10, 11, 9, maybe it's 9 and 11, that Israel is blinded for now in the church age so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. Why? Because they rejected Christ in that first century, many of them. And so their eyes have been blinded. But the day's going to come when they're going to see clearly and they're going to spread the gospel. Woohoo! going to be a vast multitude of people saved during the tribulation period. Fortunately, I'm not going to be here because it's going to be a tough time to be alive on this earth. And the church is going to be gone. Jesus is coming back for us. So that's who he's writing to. Partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, even as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man, Jesus, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And as much as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. Moses was a faithful servant. In Moses' servitude as a servant of God, what did he do? Well, he went down and talked to Pharaoh when he was scared to death and knew he couldn't speak very clearly. God sent Aaron down to go with him. And he led the children of Israel out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, and into the wilderness. And there, at the foot of Mount Sinai, he put up with their complaining for a year, supplied water for them when they were dying of thirst, supplied manna from heaven for them, always at the command of God. Because the servant's only responsibility is to be obedient to the command. Of his master. And God was Moses' master. That's what he's saying here. Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant. For a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. That's why we have the book of Deuteronomy. Because if we just had the book of Exodus with the law given there. The book of Numbers describing all the problems that they had while they were in the wilderness, how all the people died who were not among the numbered tribes over the age of 40, excuse me, over the age of 20. We wouldn't know about the law. But Deuteronomy comes along and Moses gives them the law the second time and gives commands to Joshua. And then when Joshua becomes the leader, he makes them put up uh, Ebenezer's, these big piles of rocks, these st- stacks of stones, so that whenever they walk by and their kids say, oh, what's that bigger stack of rocks over there, Dad? They could tell them what God did in bringing them out of Egypt and bringing them across the Jordan River into the land, how he gave them the land. 
living in houses they didn't have to build, eating vegetables and fruit that they didn't have to plant. God just took care of them. Moses was a faithful servant in all of those things. But Christ, verse 6, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end, wherefore, parenthesis, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if you will hear his voice and harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said they do always err in their heart and they have not known my ways, so I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. That's the parentheses. Go back to the wherefore and we're going to drop to the beginning of verse 12. Wherefore, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you being hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke. They did provoke God. Howbeit, not all that came out of Egypt by Moses, but with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, into his rest but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So what's the major problem in the wilderness journey? What kept the children of Israel from entering into the promised land? Unbelief. Lack of faith. So how much do you trust God? Hundred percent. So you don't ever worry anymore, is that right? Because if you're worried or in doubt, you're supposed to run in circles, scream and shout. So at least you get some exercise out of it, because it's not going to do any more good than the worrying. Okay. Do we trust God? Well, what about if somebody in our family gets sick, desperately ill? What if somebody in the family uh, falls and hits their head? What if somebody in the family uh, loses their job and it's like you? And what if the house payment's coming due and there's no money to buy groceries? And, and then what do we do? What are we supposed to do? Trust God. Trust God. You see, Matthew 6.33, wonderful verse. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And we leave out the word first. We say, seek ye the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And if you really need it, God will take care of you. No, that's not what it says. It says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. What kind of things? Well, he just talked about 
closed. Lilies of the field are clothed better than Solomon in all of his glory. And aren't you more valuable than lilies, you know, flowers that grow in the ditch? And birds, they don't plant, plow gardens and plant seeds and God feeds them. And places to live? Oh my goodness. Oh, what are we going to do? Where are we going to live? What's happening? Ah! Aren't you more valuable than a sparrow that falls out of a nest? Of course you are. Yeah, God sees the sparrow. But He knows every hair on your head. He knows your name. Not just what people call you. What your name is in glory. That's why we see the song. There's a new name written down in glory. It's mine. Wow. Because when we get to heaven, God's going to call us by our character. Okay? Down here, people call me Randy, which comes from the word house wolf. Okay? And they call me Casey which comes from the from a word that means fierce warrior. Okay? In fact, our family crest it has three falcon heads on it, and the falcon heads have been torn off. Okay? Not neatly sliced. Their falcon heads have been torn off. They're jagged on the bottom. Okay? Because we're fierce warriors. We don't mess with chopping heads off. We just rip them loose. Okay? And so you put those two names together, and my name means... Junkyard dog. (laughs) Fierce warrior that's a house wolf. That's a junkyard dog if I ever heard of one. In heaven, I'm going to be named for my character. And you're going to be named for your character. Say, Brother Casey, do you know what your name is yet? No. But I can't wait to get there and find out. I'm pretty excited to get there, in fact. We do not want to provoke God because of our unbelief. You hear me? Say it again. We do not want to provoke God because of our unbelief. One of the things that people who say they believe in God do not believe about God anymore is that God expects us to be faithful. Faithful. That means full of faith. It also means to be in your place when you're supposed to be there. 1 Corinthians 3 1, 2 Corinthians 3 1, 4 1. Moreover, it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And we are stewards of the ministry of the gospel. Stewards of the gospel. Which means that the the owner of the gospel is our master. We're to be faithful. And this morning we had 81. Do we have 81 tonight? Now there's some downstairs and there's some next door. I, I, I recognize that. 
But I bet there's not 81. Why? Because folks don't believe God requires faithfulness. Hmm. See, Brother Casey, you're trying to tell us something? No, I think God's trying to tell us something. You know? A number of the folks in our church do not tithe because the word tithe means one-tenth. And the scripture is quite clear. One-tenth belongs to God. It's the interest payment. It's the interest payment. Now, I'm responsible for a loan of $1.6 million. Okay? And another loan for $700,000. Okay? You say, Brother Casey, yeah. And we got those loans at less than 5%. Woohoo! So every month, we pay the interest, and then we make a payment on the principal. Okay? God owns everything, and everything He has put into my care, I am responsible to Him for with 10% interest payments. It's just recognition of ownership. Why do I pay the bank? Three and a half, oh, that's more than that, close to 4%. Why do I pay the bank 4% interest every month? Because it's their money that I'm using. The bank owns it. And what they don't know is God owns the bank. I just let them bask in ignorance. But it's just ownership. So why don't why didn't everybody tithe? Well, because everybody doesn't believe God can provide for you. Okay? That's why. I, instead of setting a tithe aside ahead of time, setting it aside first and letting God provide for them and take care of their bills, they pay all their bills, and if there's any left, they give that to God. Say, well, doesn't God want you to pay your bills? Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you shouldn't pay your bills. I'm saying God does not expect you to do it. Say, what? No, they're His bills. He'll pay them. If he knows that you're trusting him to do it. Okay? And how does he know you're trusting him? If you pay the interest on his money first. Then he knows you're going to trust him for the rest. I don't know how we make it every month. I don't know how we make it every year. But I do know that years ago I started tithing on what I wanted to make the next year. And every year... God has caused my income to go up. There was a whole year when I was without employment. I was sick, couldn't work a whole year. Every week, every week, the same amount of money I tithed on the year before was placed in my bank account. You say, Brother Casey, you're kidding. I am not kidding. I am dead serious. He used God's people to meet my needs. And they did it every month. I mean every week. For over a year. I'm trying to tell you something here. I'm trying to tell you that God is not impressed with unbelief. 
Okay? And the reason the people did not, those people 20 and older, did not go into the land of Israel? Because of unbelief. You know why Moses did not go into the land of Israel? Because of disobedience. Okay? I started saying belief too, but no, Moses believed God. He just disobeyed. God said, speak to the rock. And Moses was so angry, he went over and whacked it with his stick. Was he angry at God? No, he's angry at these people. You know? He said, Brother Casey, why would he be like that? Oh, you've never pastored or you know. The perfect church. This is a church that averages about 5,000 on Sunday morning and has no members, no deacons. Just a pastor. See, really? Yeah, in the minds of a lot of preachers, that's true. (laughs) You know? Because people can be entirely frustrating. Uh, man, I used to see people come to my dad for counseling, and he would talk to them and be so kind with them. Drunks and, and well, we didn't have a lot of drug problems back then other than alcohol. But, but these people would come, and, and my dad would counsel with them and, and encourage them and help them. And I only saw him really angry three or four times my whole life. And each of those times, it was because of believers who knew what was right, and they wouldn't do it. <laughs> oh, he gets so upset. And I think, oh, you know, well, I know to do right, and I think I'm going to do it. I don't want my dad mad at me. But truth is, who did Jesus get angry with? The religious crowd who knew the right, what was right and didn't do it. So that's who got Moses got mad at. Okay? We haven't even touched on this chapter. So we'll come back to it another time. But what I want you to know is, God wants you to be faithful. And then next time we'll look at why Jesus is so much better than Moses. Okie doke. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word. Dear Lord, boy, drive it deep into our hearts. Help us to recognize that we are to live our lives according to your word. Help us to be faithful. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.